I'm Tamara Steele. In this week's show, some hopeful stats in the 11th version of this report. St. John lands a unique convention and specific honors to celebrate the life and impact of Ermine Cohen. New Brunswick's Child, Youth, and Seniors Advocate is concentrating on education rights in the 11th State of the Child Report. This is the final report for Norm Basse, whose seven-year term is about to end. Paul Sembe's Brad Perry spoke with Basse following the release of the report. What are some of the uh, the highlights of this year's report? I guess it's uh, taking a look at it nearly 100 pages long. It is, and uh, it's like our usual reports, which go over a whole series of areas uh, affecting uh, children and youth in the province. Uh, and this year we concentrated this on, on, on education rights, uh, and we've made but one recommendation, which is, I won't say unusual, but... Uh, uh, certainly, we usually have two or three or four uh, recommendations to government in our State of the Child report. This one uh, that, that we've made is a very broad recommendation, and, and, and it deals with the uh, the province taking all measures, either legislatively, administratively, or uh, in, in some other form, to really fully implement the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child. This is the 30th anniversary of the uh, of the creation of the uh, of the uh, United Nations Convention. The rights of the child. It was uh, brought to be uh, to being in 1989, so it's 30 years old. Uh, Canada, Canada ratified it in 1991. So we're on the the the, the 30th anniversary of this uh, really worldwide uh, ratified uh, convention, and you know people still don't know much about the convention on the rights of the child, including uh, youth and children. Um, and we're saying well, we have to do better. Because it's by ensuring that they know their their rights and uh, uh, the uh, the right to consult our office as well that they they should have problems uh, that we're going to make a difference in their lives and we have to start doing that in the schools obviously. Now I know your report uh, noted uh, quite a few improvements uh, that that have been made uh, yes. over the last few years. I guess can you touch on some of the uh, the highlights in that area? Well, the, the improvements and really one of the biggest ones that I've seen since I've been here since 2013 is the reduction in rates of, of youth that are being uh, sent to the youth center in Miramichi and incarcerated. Um, when I started, the average daily count of youth in the Miramichi center was 25 to 30 in that range. Uh, I get the count now every every morning, and as of this morning, there are seven youth at the NBYC in Miramichi. That's a huge difference, and and that was brought about by a shift in thinking and, and, and applying the Youth Criminal Justice Act properly so that the last resort was, would, would be to criminalize or to put our kids in jail. It just, uh, it's not where they should be. Uh, now there are youth who will commit crimes that, uh, that need correction and, and maybe they have to spend some time in, in secure facilities, but for the most part they don't. And, and I, that's, that's been a major shift here in New Brunswick over the last uh, six years. Um, so the, as well in that vein, pre-trial detention, uh, where a judge might say, well, I'll put you on remand until we come back. That's, that's also gone down. So those are, those are good stories. Um, the rate of youth charged with drug offenses is considerably, considerably lower than the Canadian average as a whole. Oh, that's definitely good news. Now, what about uh, on the flip side? What are some of the, the concerns and challenges that you're still, uh, still noticing? I'll tell you where we're seeing those challenges. Uh, it is with the youth who are 
in um, areas of poverty or that they have food insecurity. Um, when you start looking at those statistics, for example, in one case, uh, the statistics would show us that uh, a youth with uh, food insecurity or poverty um, uh, would only uh, 25% of them believe that their families can help them. Uh, and there are other statistics that show that they're uh, much higher in the scale of, for example, uh, tobacco use. Uh, the, uh, the youth who, who report, self-report in these surveys, uh, that group is certainly higher than the average uh, 4% of youth who, who use tobacco, as well as the First Nations youth uh, in that category. And lastly, I mean, you know, this is the 11th uh, report that has come out. You're, you've been in charge of the office for a few years now that's been uh, putting out this report. Why do you feel that uh, this is such an important report uh, to be releasing every year? Well, what happens is that, uh, and, and we've said this in the report this year, that frankly, uh, Brian, we, we think this should be a government function. In other words, government should be reporting on, on the, the, the state of their children and, and the children in the province. But they don't do it, so our office, uh, before I even took uh, position in 2013, had been preparing these reports. And we feel it's important to bring up these statistics to start showing where the areas of improvement are and where the areas of work uh, need to be, uh, the areas that need to be addressed, uh, because we haven't made any progress. And if we don't do that on a yearly basis, well, you know, uh, who's going to know if we're doing a good job with our youth in this province? This is my final year uh, in the office. Uh, I have a seven-year uh, term non-renewable. So this would be my final state of the child report, uh, so to speak, and uh, it's, it was important for me to make sure that we that we go back to the roots of the thing, which is the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. I'm Brad Perry. A luncheon and award will pay tribute to the late Ermine Cohen, founder of the New Brunswick Adoption Foundation. Cohen, who passed away in February, will be remembered with the Ermine Cohen Compassion Award and luncheon to be presented in March. Following the announcement at the St. John Public Library, I spoke with Suzanne Kingston, Executive Director of the New Brunswick Adoption Foundation. Where did the idea to pay tribute to Ermini? Was it just a natural idea or did... Was it just... She's, she was um, still fairly active with her organization, even, you know, right up until that last year. Um, and after she passed, our first board meeting, after that, we thought, you know, she has had such an impact in adoption, but even in all of us, like in how we then did our work, you know, and how she inspired, the way she engaged people and the way she, you know, most of the board members, most people that have been on the board at some point, Ermini would have recruited them or, you know, would have, would have somehow got people engaged. And that was quite a thing to lose, right? So we thought it's really important to keep the ripple effect of what she's done for us. Like how she, like in many ways, I remember after feeling like she's propelling us still, you know? So there was this sense of her memory was propelling us, but we needed to kind of make sure that memory stays alive. Um, so we thought of an event. We thought, well, let's do an event. And then one of the board members, actually Claire Northcott, said, what about an award? So the idea of an award would, would um, allow, you know, it would be very much about Ermini and, and how 
the kind of person she was, and, and certainly her work within adoption, but her work everywhere, you know, because she was involved with a lot of other um, social justice issues and making the world a better place. Um, so we thought through an Ermini Cohen Award, we can remember her and her influence, but then we're going to identify others that are like her. What do people not know about adoption in New Brunswick? I think people within the adoption community know a ton about adoption. <laughs> like they are, they are the experts in terms of um, what it's like. What you know, you certainly when we heard the Eisner speak today, you know, the having to balance all of these different emotions and perspectives. Um, I think it's easy to look at adoption as a simple happy story. And it's not a simple happy story. It's it often starts with a very unhappy story, like you know that any adoption um, starts with a tragedy. Um, but over time, um, it becomes a happy story um, where children become part of a loving family. Um, but that's not easy. It's not easy um, raising kids. It's not easy for the kids who've been through that. They've had these harrowing journeys, and then they're in a home that's forever home. Um, and it's not a, like for those kids, um, they've learned to survive without permanency, without, you know, coming from families that weren't healthy. Um, so the transition is hard, and, and having, incredibly compassionate adoptive parents um, understanding where those kids are coming from and understanding um, helping those kids heal so there's so I think I think I think it the, the, the how simple it isn't it is complicated um, and it and it does take a lot of support Ermini Cohen's daughters, Kathy Tate and Shelley Cohen Thorley, couldn't be more pleased learning about the impact their mother had. What does this mean to you, uh, these very specific honours for your mom? Oh my, where to begin? What do, um, they are a recognition of the impact that our mother had on the New Brunswick Adoption Foundation, and we couldn't be more pleased. She was um, a die-hard fan in the end of the Adoption Foundation. She began it as a challenge, uh, a most valuable and needed uh, service in the community. And when she stepped down as president, she was a committed, passionate member of the adoption community. And for us to know that she contributed in such a way um, is gratifying and heart heartwarming and important for us because we remember her as our mother, not always remembering her for her impact um, in the various ways that she contributed. Talk about the artwork. How do you feel about that? I think somebody said it's so representative of her with the colors because she was a very colorful lady. And the artwork itself is magnificent and well representative of everything. The award will come in the form of a wood sculpture by artist Werner Arnold. 
and is made possible through support from a group of New Brunswick senators. John Wallace and Ermini Cohen share that unique Canadian experience, but he met her long before when he was a kid. Well, I've uh, known uh, Ermini for for many years, uh, going really back to my childhood from the days when she and her husband had the uh, clothing store Hoffman's on Main Street. And uh, my mother and father, I, th- I think that mom and dad knew, th- knew them prior to that, but they, were, they saw a lot of them through the store and through the North End, and through that I got to meet her as, as a young kid in those days. Uh, the, and then when I was uh, uh, um, appointed to the Senate, or before I was appointed, but after it was, came public, uh, Ermini called me, she said, and she was not a senator at that point, she'd retired. And she said, John, look, I've got some interesting background I can give you and pre- help prepare you for what uh, this world, new world you're going into. So I said, oh, that'd be great. Thank you. So I met with her, and uh, she was wonderful. She had files. She had information on all of the senators and their pictures, and she took me through all of that. I had a comment about each of the senators and uh, what she thought of them and thought that might be helpful. So it was, uh, and it was extremely helpful. Um, over the years, uh, she was very supportive, as you know, of the uh, Progressive Conservative Party, and as was I. And so through those, through political, uh, political involvement, we saw a fair amount of each other. She, um, she, was, she was just, as her daughter said this morning, just a wonderful, caring, sincere person. One of those people that when she met you or when she saw you, you had that feeling you were the most important person in the room. And, and, she, and it was all very natural and, and uh, to her. But there was that feeling of warmth, and just a wonderful, warm person. With the work she's done and the initiative she, she took on with uh, the adoption group has uh, been tremendous. I was talking to John Eisner, who is uh, the president of the association, and I didn't realize until this morning that John was adopted. And John and I worked together many years ago, together. And uh, just listening to he and his wife talk about their experience and with their daughter, who's adopt, who they adopted, you just get a feeling of how how important her work was. The Ermini Cohen Compassion Luncheon is coming up in March of 2020 at the Delta Marriott in St. John. Acadia Broadcasting is a sponsor of the event. Volunteers are needed. To help, contact Suzanne at the New Brunswick Adoption Foundation. The City of St. John is going to host a special convention in 2022. Paul Sambi's Kevin Worrell spoke to the Executive Director of Discover St. John, Victoria Clark, earlier this week about the big event. Discover St. John got some great news the other day. Tell me all about it, please. We sure did, um, Kevin. I am currently attending PCMA CIC, which is the Professional Meeting Planners Association uh, Canadian Innovation Conference and it's being held here in Quebec City for 2019. And yesterday, at the Eastern Canadian chapter of PCMA's AGM, they announced that St. John has been chosen as the 2022 location for this excellent, excellent conference. And the reason that it's important to us, Kevin, is that I feel very strongly, and so do my team, that if we get you to St. John, we win. It's really about the visibility of our city, 
So every year we host about, you know, between 25 and 45 what we call uh, familiarization clients. And so those are clients that are decision makers for uh, for meetings and for conferences. And uh, if we get you to our city, you can't stop thinking about it. So we are so excited that for 2022 that we will be inviting hundreds of meeting planner decision makers uh, to the city, which really for me would be the equivalent of about hosting 12 years of familiarization tours all over four days. Now, I understand it's going to have the obvious uh, huge economic impact as well, or a spinoff. Well, it's what I like to call the boom and the echo. So the boom is that we will be hosting a large conference. You know, St. John, we've been very successful with our partners, our hotel partners, in attracting meetings and conventions, sports tours, and business to the city of St. John. And like all of those, uh, all of those events, um, the immediate impact of having uh, the ability to host those people in our city. So that's where you see the over three hundred thousand dollars of immediate economic impact. The thing that's exciting about this conference in particular is the echo, and the echo is that we will have hundreds of meeting planner decision makers leaving our city with an incredible impression of St. John, so that when they go forward to their associations or corporations to make a suggestion for a destination for their next AGM, their next conference, their next trade show, that they will consider St. John. So it's kind of ironic. It's a convention for convention uh, planners. Is that what it is? Well, it is. It is. <laughs> and, that's, and, and that's what makes it like... That's what makes it such an energizing um, uh, a meeting here in Quebec City. So you can imagine that we have quite a busy calendar year. And here we are, mid-November, in Quebec City. It's snowing. But we are among uh, our colleagues from across the country that are attracting you know, regional, national, and international conferences. And so when you get to, when it's, when it's actually just selling to the end user, it's, uh, it's very, very energizing. And so we've been having a great week here in, in Quebec City. I'm Kevin Worrell. A promise to double New Brunswick's protected and conserved land and fresh water was mentioned in Tuesday's throne speech. Earlier this year, the Higgs government announced it would up those numbers from 4.6% to reach its target of 10%. I spoke with Lois Corbett of the Conservation Council of New Brunswick last month about the protection changes. I think some good news for your organization and some others in New Brunswick, who, yeah, it's a uh, pretty darn good day for nature. Yeah, New Brunswick. So, so tell so, us why uh, you're excited about it. I'm excited and I'm pleased. Look, we started in a hole. Put it that way. We're kind of uh, way, way back with in comparison to other provinces. Is it everything that we need? Absolutely not. But look, it's important to recognize good, hard work and great announcements when they happen. So tell me a little bit about things that exist naturally in nature help offset the impacts of storms, floods, and droughts, and why it's so critical to protect them. So think about um, a small hill or a small mountain, and you're going up the slope of it. So on one hand, if you're a clear cutter and you go in and cut all that timber off and make a little bit of money really quickly on uh, making toilet paper out of those small trees, that's one thing. On the other hand, if you leave it there for protection for nature, then all the habitat we know can continue to survive. And come next spring, the whole side of the, of the mountain or the hill won't slide into the river when the snow melts. So that's how 
more nature actually protects us, especially in times of extreme climate change like we've witnessed in New Brunswick. So it's like we really got this wake-up call from Hurricane Arthur, from Hurricane Dorian, from the ice storm, and the two big floods of the St. John River, that we need to have our wetlands and our land protect us. So even though we, the minister is protecting nature today, it's actually protecting us humans who put us, put us in the hole in the first place, but it, it ends up being for the good of us as part of nature too. Then there's all those other qualities that nature has, which is acting as water filtration systems, acting to cool temperatures, acting to keep cold streams and rivers cool so that their fish habitat, which is very important to the fish industry, of course, in the province. So there's all these kind of trickle-down effects. And if we can get our nature protection right, we can get a lot of healthy, vibrant, sustainable villages and towns right. Not enough. So from here, what should happen next? Well, two things, uh, two or three things, <laughs> Tamara, and I, I'm not sure they're in any order, um, but we need to make sure that this, these new hectares, hundreds of thousands of them announced, are protected in law so that the next time there's another forest management agreement, they're not taken out again. They've come in and they've gone out and they've come in and they've gone out. So if indeed we're trying to protect them for 2020, and 2030, we need to have it enforceable in law so that they're going to be around for a long time. Secondly, we need a path to figure out exactly where these hectares are going to come from. At the end of the day, we just don't want a map of New Brunswick with isolated pockets or circles of nature protected surrounded on all sides by clear cuts. We want to have some corridors. We want to have all old-growth forest stands protected. We want to have habitat for endangered species protected. And we definitely need some riverbank, stream bank, and coastal um, areas protected. So we'll be looking, we'll need to dig down in those details, kind of getting down into the weeds on nature protection. And But the minister committed to do that in partnership with the conservation groups industry stakeholders, the First Nation community and government. So we'll see that going forward. And then the two other big pieces is where do we go from here? Now that we finally caught up on 10% by 2020, how do we exceed that and get more and understand the real value that nature protection um, offers New Brunswick in the day and age of climate change? And so that is working out a process to set aside more nature protection in 2025 and in 2030. So we don't have to play this catch-up time again in 2024, shall we say. Let's start a process that leads us down the right path to ultimately get more. And then there's one big, big, big policy piece left, which is the reform of the Crown Forest Act. Again, that's back to my comment about it's great to have increased um, uh, protected areas parks um, protected for the the sake of nature, but if they are surrounded on all four sides or all three sides by massive industrial clear cuts, we really haven't changed the way we work in our woods. And so we need to dig 
deeply down into the Crown Forest Management Act and make it fairer for woodlot owners, more fair for First Nations industry people, and um, the original owners who never ceded the land rights, and thirdly, for nature. Now, that is a big, big piece, and we needed to set aside some nature to get into that huge policy conversation, and I expect that to happen. All of the groups know that there's some heavy lifting to do when it comes to changing how we protect our entire crown forest. That's it for this week's show. I'm Tamara Steele.